As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to an hour of our time, the podcast where we pick a topic, learn about it, and come and tell you what we've learned. Today, we're going to talk about mass extinctions with special emphasis on the end Cretaceous mass extinction, the famous one that wiped out the non-bird dinosaurs, as well as maybe 70% of all life on the planet. We're going to talk about how the mass extinction occurred, a little bit of the history of science of how we discovered this, and how dinosaurs are not really extinct. I'm Joe. I'm Dave. And I'm Mark. All right. The threesome back again. Yeah, First buddy. episode back with Joe after his illness. <sighs> yep. Was a, You're feeling better. It was a long trip to get here. We, yeah. We, we did. We did it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that illness did not make you extinct. Oh. Oh, I did it. Bringing us right to it. Good job. Right off the top. That's Good. how it's done. Good job. So, so Joe, how would you um how would you categorize today's episode? Well, I was thinking about this before we started recording i'm i'm drinking a delicious uh for a while i was doing like what beer am i drinking while we're recording and i kind of want to get away from that because we were doing like kind of down a few we had a few downer episodes their <laughs> first stretch yeah i feel like um are just some serious history topics too um mm-hmm. i am drinking a land grant brain company creamsicle by the way tastes like a creamsicle yeah, good. if you listen to our recently reposted beer episode, it was featuring Land Grant. Yep, um, they do some great stuff. But today's episode, we are going to talk about uh, mass extinction events in general, but primarily the mass extinction event that uh, most people know of as wiping out the dinosaurs, although we will go into detail about why that is not accurate. Oh, okay. The spoiler you, spoiler alert. Dinosaurs are still with us. I know this is an audio medium, but I have my birds are dinosaurs type shirt on. So oh, Joe's got a dinosaur shirt on. I'm as also well. wearing a dinosaur shirt. I Get have the fuck to out of here, Mark. I have to I've admit, got a uh, a shirt with a skeleton of a centaur on it. Close oh, enough. Badass. I didn't do that on purpose. I'll allow it. Well, I have to admit, I did not want to do this on purpose either. I just have a lot of shirts that have dinosaurs on them. 
I didn't do this on purpose either. It was like the clean T-shirt I could find. So there, there, you, there you go. Yeah. So. Dave, Dave, and All I right, do well, work work in a building that has dinosaur skeletons in it. True. True. So, yeah. Well, to remind the listeners, you know, last week Mark and I did an episode about guitars, and we spoke a bit to our expertise on the topic. Because that's not always the case. Often we are picking a topic that we know a little bit about and are familiarizing ourselves with that topic to share with you. In this case, one of us is an expert on the topic. So, Joe, speak a little bit to that for people who might not know that. I know we, I think we bring it up quite a bit, but yeah, every once in a while. Um, the uh, the unofficial motto of this podcast, of course, or catchphrase is, "Man, we don't know shit about shit." Right. That should be a t-shirt. But I do know some shit about this. So my background is in paleontology. That's what I went to graduate school for. I've participated in paleontological research expeditions uh, at the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary, which we are going to talk about. And specifically, my advisor's research uh, in our lab that we participated in was looking at who survived the mass extinction. In his case, we were looking at mammal groups. Because you think about this okay. mass extinction wiping out the dinosaurs, but it 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 hit pretty much every major group of animals, including mammals. A lot of mammal groups went extinct. Um, did did anything thrive out of this mass extinction? I mean, was there a, an animal group that like? You know, maybe there were some that were less affected than others, but were there any that like kind of hit their their stride following? Yeah. This? Well, there's um there's short term and long term. Mass extinctions always have, always have winners and losers. There's a something called the disaster taxa, which are okay. organisms that um you know in 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 shorter time scales, like after forest fire or something like that, you'll see you know certain plants will repopulate very quickly and things like that. Um, but then on a longer time scale, after like a mass extinction event, you'll see certain organisms thrive. A great example is after the world's largest mass extinction, about 250 million years ago, the end to Permian mass extinction, which we maybe will talk, we'll, we'll probably talk about later. Um, after the mass extinction, you see like worldwide abundance of this animal called Lystrosaurus. It was just like adaptable creature that kind of spread all over and um, its its population rebounded pretty quickly. After the mass extinction that we are mostly discussing, you see something in the fossil record called fern spike. There's, okay. a, there's a ton of ferns because of the conditions that we will discuss. Um, but um, we found a lot of turtle fossils when we were excavating uh, during this field work. So, there are some animals that did pretty okay. Turtles were one of them. Partly that has to do probably with the fact that they could hide under the water. And that was very important because of one of the like sort of immediate effects of the asteroid impact. Something called the heat pulse. I read that this um, particular extinction killed just about everything over 50 pounds. Just and about. anything that could fly, dig underground, or swim was safer? Uh, those things certainly helped. Those those abilities certainly helped, yeah. 
I also consulted my uh, hey. Stephen Jay Gould book of life. You to have get that some book. more information. Yeah. I don't have it to hand. Oh, actually, it's at work. But I, I own that. I own that book, and I love that book. Um, if you are looking for a book to read about this subject, there is a book that just came out by one of my favorite authors named Riley Black. The book is called um, "The Last Days of the Dinosaurs," and it is really cool because it's it's uh, talking about the you know minutes, hours, days, weeks, years, on and on after the mass extinction, but it's done in a really narrative uh, style that is just really nice. Nice. So it's fun, it's fun to read, but there's real science in it. Highly recommend that. Well, so yeah, so I don't want to, where, where do we, yeah, where do we start? Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to spend this time <laughs> talking, although I am very excited to be behind the microphone again. Um, let, let's orient our, listeners by talking about what we mean by a mass extinction okay so a mass extinction event as it sounds like is uh an event where a large portion of species and higher level taxa like genus family things like that go extinct they're gone from the earth um the uh Geologists, geologists, and paleontologists recognize five major mass extinctions. There are also several, many, many, many other um, smaller mass extinctions. The mass extinction events, <clears throat> we're also in probably the sixth mass extinction event. I said this wasn't going to be a downer topic, but here we are. Um, the first major mass extinction event occurred during the Ordovician period. Um, there was a mass extinction event uh, during the Devonian period. So this earliest one, can you give us a time frame here? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I um, have information about these. Yeah, go ahead. So within the last uh, 450 million years ago, there have been five mass extinctions, as Joe mentioned. Um, the first one that we have record of is the Ordovician Silurian extinction event. Uh, and this was about 440 million years ago. Um, in this event, about 85% of all species became extinct. Uh, but this was during a time where most living things were corals and shelled brachiopods in shallow oceans. So life had not yet emerged onto land. Um, they, uh, I guess to preface this, the main extinction event that killed the dinosaurs is the the primary one that we're going to talk about, but it's also the one that we supposedly know the most about. Some of these other things are, are worth mentioning. They're very interesting, but scientists kind of speculate about what caused them. Yeah, it's the one that we know the most about, and it's hard to tell. That might it. It also <clears throat> happens to be the most recent of these five. True. It's not but, so. The, that's not necessarily why we know the most about it. Not or necessarily. It maybe some ways. It might have something to do with it because it, you know the further back in time you go, the more opportunity those rocks have had to become weathered away, or even like you know subducted under the Earth's crust and you know are gone forever. But it also might just be chance that we know. Have Is to it know also the most about that? Well, could it also be that like 
that last extinction, you're dealing with so many very large animals that, and they're, you know, they're closer to the surface. That combined just means that the fossil record that we're finding is easier to come upon. Actually, the fossil record at the very latest Cretaceous is not great. Really? Um, which causes some problems with dating the mass extinction or like determining the, the pace and timing of it. Um, mm -hmm. It also might be that this is more intensely studied because, well, shit, everyone loves dinosaurs. <laughs> yep. Two of the three of us are wearing dinosaur shirts. <laughs> Mark, keep During... going with our mass extinctions. Okay. During this first extinction event, um, the land masses of the Earth were combined into Gondwana. One this is the Ordovician solar and mass extinction that you're talking about. Yeah. And um, they believe that this supercontinent kind of shifted into a polar region and it caused uh, mass glaciation and um, ended up stripping away habitats from many species, um, disrupted food chains. And it also says here something about um, this was a time period possibly when the Appalachian Mountains were created. Yeah. And that the uh, process of that absorbed um, gases in a way that affected the atmosphere. We don't know. Ex yeah. We don't know exactly what happened with this one. Um, it probably has something to do with some kind of climate change, but they're also, this is associated with a mass glaciation event. Yeah. There are some other kind of more out there theories. Um, one of them suggests that toxic metal may have dissolved into water. Um, oxygen depletion that would affect marine life. And um, there's also a, a weird theory about a possible gamma ray burst from a nearby hypernova that like dosed everything with radiation. Yeah. You, you don't like that, is that one. Stuff like that is very hard to test. It's not; it does not make for a good hypothesis. Yeah, um, yeah. This one, most most um, most scientists think this probably had something to do with. Um, there were vol a lot of volcanism events. That's kind of a pattern that you see with a lot of these. There Just was this about mass all of these, a, a bunch of volcanoes. Yes, is a, a theory behind it. Yes, that has something to do with a lot of these. Um, some there might have been some anoxic event because um, some of the earliest uh, plants were developing at this time, and um, that has some might have something to do with this. And then, uh, like I said, the the glaciation event. But again, we are less clear about a lot of the the other four mass extinction events than we are about the the end Cretaceous one. Yeah. The next one. Uh, historically speaking, is the late Devonian extinction. And this was 365 million years ago. The Devonian period is called the Age of Fish. Many yep. um, prehistoric fish and marine species evolved during this time. If you know anything about, if you, or if you know like a lot about paleontology, you might be familiar with Dunkleosteus, the armored fish that's the state fossil fish of Ohio. I was going to mention from, him. That's from... Yeah, that's from this time period. Dunk. Dunk? Yeah, Dunk. or Dunky. Um, during this time, animals have begun to evolve on land, um, coming out of the water, and also vascular plants, trees, and flowers um, arose around this time, but may also have been 
the cause of the second mass extinction. Um, the sudden absorption of CO2 caused uh, a global cooling effect. It seems like throughout this geographic time scale, it gets hotter and colder, hotter and colder. And a lot of climate denier people will say like, oh, this is a natural process, <laughs> but it's way out of the normal parameters. Um, this one took a long time, maybe 20 million years over the course of 20 million years. So these are not, so some of these are not, um, you know, brief events. Yeah. Hmm. Here's an interesting statement about this, um, involving the development of plants. I'm just going to read it from this article that I found from a live science website. Um, as plants evolve roots, they inadvertently transformed the land they lived on, turning rock to rubble into soil. And according to the BBC, this nutrient-rich soil then ran into the world's oceans, causing algae to bloom at an enormous scale, um, which caused dead zones um, that strip oxygen from the water and suffocate marine life and, and fucking up marine food chains and whatnot. So this is something that we see today as well. Um, although not on such a big scale. Sure. And um, theories about volcanic eruptions or a possible asteroid impact uh, are involved in this too. But I, again, we're not sure. Yeah, there is a structure called the Siljan Ring in Sweden that may, it's right now, it's a, it doesn't look like a crater field in a map. It just looks like a, um, I mean, it just looks like a lake. But um, it may, it's dated to this area or this time period, and it might have something to do with this. It might be uh, an asteroid crater. The third mass extinction is the Permian Triassic extinction. This was about 250 million years ago. And this is called the Great Dying. This is even more uh, relevant than the main, the main asteroid deal. Um, during this extinction event, about 96% of marine life and 70% of terrestrial life became extinct. So it's a pretty pretty big deal. I love the Great Dying's first album. And they kind of <laughs> the sound mm. kind of soft after that, you know what I mean? Is this the largest mass extinction event? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, then the name sticks. <clears throat> this was a period of rampant volcanism. Um, at the end of the Permian period, the part of the world um, where Siberia is now erupted into a series of explosive volcanoes, releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, weather patterns shifted, sea levels rose, and acid rain became a normality. Damn. The great Chalupa after effect. <laughs> this also killed off a lot of insects. That's something that didn't develop yet this one is interesting because there's um this is an area of pretty intense research because i mean it's the most massive mass extinction event it almost wiped out all life on the planet um but we don't know what caused it there are the siberian traps which are which is this this huge volcanism event and i think when people think of a volcano think of like you know like it blows its top like a mountain blowing its top this was like uh, an area the size of Siberia in modern-day Russia 
just like gushing out lava over the course of hundreds of thousands or even millions of years, um, which seems like it should affect the climate in some way, but we don't know exactly how. Then mm-hmm. um, the thing that other also complicates this is trying to date this mass extinction because it actually might be two mass extinctions that are very close to one another, and it's difficult to kind of parse them from one another. That Each is, one of uh, these well, events one takes idea. takes place over thousands of years or m- millions of years, probably. Yep. Yeah, I think that's the important thing to point out. It's not it's not a singular moment. Yeah. There might be a a something that triggers this that has like the, the first domino to fall, but yeah, we're talking about over a long period of time. But that's now, you said we contrast with the end Cretaceous mass extinction, which is geologically an instantaneous event sure but the death of all the dinosaurs wasn't an instantaneous event yes is what i mean but it is it was though the large ones within days probably okay days yeah still not instant yeah. but so you said that we don't know why the the great dying occurred but i'm imagine that there are some popular theories something that i read suggested that an asteroid once again impacted siberia and caused um these volcanoes to i mean you can probably put that theory forward for any of these but as they say no body no murder there there is yeah there over the years has been um attempts to you know sort of associate this with a you know an impact event but um it that no one no one has been successful in finding uh, a crater that looks like it's associated with this time period i think there's been various claims i think one in australia perhaps but the problem is the dating of that crater is like give or take a billion years so it's mm. not it's kind of it's yeah it's, it's kind of hard um but there is um there was the super, the supercontinent Pangaea, uh, and the breakup of Pangaea was might have been involved here. I read about this too. This is kind of interesting. Um, the volcanism certainly has pro- one. Of, that's probably the the most cited possible cause. Um, methane hydrate, which are um, methane that is frozen under the ocean. But if you get enough of a warming event, then that ice melts and the methane comes to the surface. And methane is a, a much, much, much more powerful uh, greenhouse gas than CO2. So it sort of supercharges global warming. And um, the either by a combination of some global warming maybe kicked off by these volcanoes or by shifting continents unlocked these uh, methane hydrates from the ocean causing this, you know, runaway climate loop. That's one of the major hypotheses. One other thing that I read here dealing with the orientation of Pangaea is that um, around this time, the the structure of the Earth kind of created a, a shallow, stagnant ocean that yeah. accumulated carbon dioxide, causing sea temperatures to rise, and reduced oxygen levels. 
And we know that corals were affected primarily during this time. Uh, and I think that this is similar to some of the issues that corals are having now with rising sea temperatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coral bleaching. Mark, thank you for um, helping me remi- or remind me that I misspoke a minute ago. Pangea was had formed in the mid-Permian. I, I said it was breaking up. Okay. So, sorry, yes, it was all the continents forming into one supercontinent. And like you said, this this massive, possibly relatively still ocean, yes, also might have had something to do with these climate effects. So whatever it was, it was complicated because it was the the biggest of these. So it might have been multiple causes. Yeah. Hmm. The fourth extinction event is the Triassic-Jurassic extinction. This was about 200 million years ago, and about 80% of species were made extinct. Uh, and we know the least about this event. Yeah. Um, although afterwards, plants and dinosaurs thrived. If there's any like time period that I would most want to, like you know, visit, or or even like just watch um a doc cool like CG documentary about they just came out with um, a dinosaur CG documentary on Apple TV plus called prehistoric planet, but it's like dealing with the latest Cretaceous. I really want to see a documentary about the, the Triassic because there's just so many weird animals that um, a lot of, a lot of which never left any um, living descendants. Which is a really interesting time where life was almost like experimenting with um, different body forms and different ways to make a living. Um, My favorite example, just real quick. You meant a living thing, but I mean, you made a funny joke out of that. Yeah, niche. My favorite example are the drapanosaurs, which were these, um, the only way I can describe them is like monkey lizards. Some of these other animals Hmm. sort of look like kind of dog lizards. Yeah, you're probably talking about the... Look um, kind of strange. Probably talking about some of the... um, There are two major lineages of archosaurs. Archosaurs are the major group of reptiles that dinosaurs belong to. Um, Today, they're represented by the crocodilians, alligators, crocodiles, and birds. There's these two major... Two major, you know, lines of archosaurs. There's what you call the croc line archosaurs, which are like crocodilians and their fossil relatives, and then the bird line archosaurs, which is like dinosaurs, pterosaurs, later birds. Um, but these croc-like archosaurs were sort of ascendant during the Triassic period. They were the top predators in the environment. But this mass extinction in the Triassic cleared the way for dinosaurs to dominate terrestrial ecosystems. Okay, that makes sense. The Dimetrodon was a, one of the dinosaurs that I was trying to remember. It's Di- sort of so like a, a weird proto-dinosaur. Dimetrodon is more closely related to mammals than dinosaurs. This is the sailback yeah. creature that gets put in all the tubes of dinosaur toys uh they lived during the permian period so the the those groups were that it belonged to were wiped out in that great dying mass extinction so like in a movie like um jurassic park 
all the the dinosaurs that they show are late Cretaceous dinosaurs, right? Almost they all. They don't have of anything them because... to do with Jurassic. Yeah, most of them. Well, they show a Triceratops and a T Rex and a Velociraptor, though it's poorly represented. They never show a Stegosaurus. There's a Stegosaurus so in the Lost World. Ah, okay. Yeah. Now, so, the Stegosaurus is not Jurassic. It's. Stegosaurus is Jurassic, period. It is Jurassic, okay. I guess we should take time to point out the, the geologic time scale. It may be sure. beneficial to you, the listener, unless you're like in the car or something, I guess. To just just look up a uh, type in geologic time scale so you can orient yourself. Um, Even if a, you're in the car, go ahead and do it. Just, do it anyway, just because. I have a beer glass that has the time scale on it and even has the mass extinctions. I I'm I'm foolish for not drinking out of it for this Your podcast. It would be a nice. Uh, it would it would have been a nice um, reference. So this uh, this. Mass extinction event, again, um, scientists point to massive volcanic activity probably in the area of the Atlantic Ocean currently. And um, similar to the Permian extinction, um, carbon dioxide was released, um, driving climate change that ended up devastating life. Sea levels rose, water acidified, and... um, Trapped methane is released from from permafrost in different areas. Yeah, kind of like what we talked about for the last one. Yep. There are a couple um, craters that have been uh, posited as being the impact, the remnants of impacts that affected this mass extinction. One is in Quebec. Um, another one in Siberia. The problem is that the dating shows that these craters don't really line up with this mass extinction very well. And I think that this is a really good time to point that out, that there have been many, many asteroid impact events in the Earth's history that are, and many of them are not associated with the mass extinction. So that begs the question, now as we begin talking about the end Cretaceous mass, mass extinction. Why did this asteroid cause a mass extinction this time? And are there answers to that? Does it have to do with where it hits, when it hits, the size of the asteroid, probably all of those things? All of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So it hit at an angle, about a 45 degree angle, which is absolutely the worst possible place it could or angle that it could hit the Earth at. It was huge. It was like six, seven miles across. If you're hitting a sphere, aren't you hitting it at a 45-degree angle just depending on your perspective? Uh, No. You could have a more head-on collision, and it wouldn't have kicked up as much ejecta into the atmosphere. Uh, it also hit in a very sulfur-rich uh, area of the crust, which kicked that up into the atmosphere and also probably led to um, acid rain, worldwide acid rain, um, and the blotting out of the sun contributed to that. And then it also hit like just off the coast. So the tidal wave, if it had just plunked into the ocean, it probably, in the middle of the ocean, like the Pacific, it probably wouldn't have caused mass extinction. 
might have caused like a local massive local extinction like in that region and possibly at the coasts that were affected by it but not a worldwide mass extinction so it was really kind of a perfect storm of the way that it hit and where it hit Hmm. before we get too far this the fifth extinction that you're talking about with the asteroid it's the one that we're most familiar with yep uh it occurred 66 million years ago um 75 percent of species became extinct and this is called the cretaceous tertiary extinction event the kpg extinction or the kt event so this one uh being the one that we know most about also has the most names can i explain why it has so many names (laughs) yeah (laughs) this has to do with the time scale and changing the geologic time scale so the geological society of america this is and and then also the um this time scale came about in like the 1800s, right? Before we had any ability to do radiographic dating. Yes, radiometric dating didn't exist. This is how it had to do with people noticing the different rock layers and the rock layers containing different forms of life. So Paleozoic is old life, Mesozoic is midlife, and then Cenozoic is basically modern life. So again, in this point of time, they had this idea, this concept of life as being this great chain of being with like ever more complex organisms replacing the inferior organisms that they preceded. But of course, we don't know that we, of course, we know that's not how life works now. Um, All organisms are adapted to suit their environment. And then as the environment changes, you know, new organisms may evolve to replace them essentially, or you might have mass extinction events. That you cannot adapt to, you know, anticipate a mass extinction event. Sure. But um, the the period 66 or 65 million years ago to now used to be called the tertiary period. Now it is referred to as, or the tertiary uh, era, I should say. Now it is referred to, or period, I'm sorry, I had it right. Now it is re- uh, part of the Cenozoic era. So Paleozoic, Mesozoic, Cenozoic. Now it is referred to by two periods, the Paleogene and the Neogene. So what once was K for Cretaceous, C was already taken by the Carboniferous. K is German word, Cretaceous. What once was the KT boundary, Cretaceous Tertiary, becomes the Cretaceous paleogene boundary so kpg or kp clear as mud this is why if you go to older museum displays including somewhere we work they'll say kt boundary still but this Mm. is why i always refer to this mass extinction as the end cretaceous mass extinction completely sidesteps this like jargon issue gotcha did that make any sense at all yeah, it's just like a changing yeah. terminology yes. situation. It all sounds very arcane, but it actually, like, you'd remember that these names are correlated with rock layers. Like, they're correlated with real things. So as our sure. understanding of the sedimentology, or the, the yeah, the sedimentology and the, and or stratigraphy and the absolute dating via radiometric dating methods, our understanding improves and we may change the names around. That makes sense. 
Yeah. Um, okay. I'm sure this is not the only example in your field of something like this. They tweak the they they tweaked the oh well, they tweaked the date. You might have heard of the this mass extinction happening six as sixty five million years ago. We now have it more pinpointed to sixty six million years ago. That um, Radio Lab episode that I sent you guys, mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah. I didn't listen to all of it, but I remember listening to it a while ago when it came out. They were talking about that this um, asteroid impact event probably happened. Uh, between June and July, I yeah, and they know that, that more specifically because of the um, flower pollen in situated in the rock layer. There's some more. There's there's a new um, <clears throat> uh, analysis of that. They think it was in the spring because of. Um, some of the, um, well, I could talk about it later, but yeah, we have very good, rel- pretty good dating for this mass extinction, which kind of helps paint a clear picture of what happened. Yeah. Sure. The, um, the asteroid impact that we're more familiar with, um, the, the asteroid itself was probably around six by six miles. The sources that I said that, uh, or sources that I referenced said that it was, uh, comparatively, the size of Mount Everest or the size of Manhattan entirely. Damn. Yeah, you can imagine um, a thing this big. But it, it entered Earth's atmosphere at around 45,000 miles per hour and punched a hole about 110 miles in diameter and 12 miles deep. Wow. Um, and it, it's off the coast of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. They call this the the Chicxulub crater. Am I saying that right? Yep. Um, okay. Can I take a step back about the size of this thing? Okay. So yeah, like in, in different cra- sources, it's cited differently too. Well, w- these are estimates okay. based on the size of the crater, primarily. Yeah, like six, somewhere between like six and nine uh, miles across. Um, one of the moons of Mars, Phobos, is about that big. It's seven God, miles, seven okay. miles wide. <laughs> now so Mars big. is very, we're talking. We're talking very big. Mars has very small moons, but this thing was fucking big. It says here that it scorched all the ra- all the land around it within nine hundred miles. Jeez. So this would have created sort of like a nuclear winter situation. Yeah, there were like short, medium, long term effects of this impact. The first is just the the impact and the shock of the impact would have vaporized everything within like Mark Lee said, like 900 to like a thousand miles, just instantaneously dead. Then pretty quickly after that, you get massive tidal waves, which is really important. And those tidal waves didn't just affect the coast. They went all the way up rivers, lakes, streams, Far, far, far inland. Something called a, a Seich or a Seish wave. Then, as these um, spherules, which are like glass, as the heat from the impact actually turned the 
pieces of Earth's crust into glass. These start to rain down. And it's like billions and trillions of tiny particles as they're re and these every one of these is like a tiny asteroid or a tiny meteor i should say as each one is re-entering the atmosphere it's heating up because of um, friction and ablation and it heats up the atmosphere the surface temperature at least in north america maybe worldwide probably got up to 500 degrees which I don't have to tell you is not a livable temperature for any organism. No, no, that's that's too hot. So this is where, Mark, you're saying animals that could go underwater or burrow under the ground are some of the only things that survived. Because they could, um, even if it's 500 degrees on the surface, just if just a few feet or underground, it's basically normal temperature one other thing uh, that is important to this is the amount of debris and dust kicked up into the atmosphere because of this impact mm -hmm. um, it prevented plants from absor absorbing sunlight uh, and when the plants died food chains got disrupted uh, for animals that had not yet died um, global temperatures plummeted um, yeah, that's the longer or sort of, that's sort of like the medium term effects, the, the nuclear winter effect. Yeah. And, and scientists believe that most extinctions from this event on earth at this time would have occurred in just months after the impact. Yep. So See, that's, that's kind of what I meant. Yeah. When I said before that, like it wasn't instantaneous, like for a lot of animals it was, but it really caused this ripple effect of environmental change you know, that wiped out a lot of what was left from the initial impact. Yeah, sorry. And I guess I'm thinking in terms in geological time. I'm thinking in terms of like what people are hearing yeah. when we say that instantaneous, like Yeah. The, in terms of geologic time, you know, it was pretty quick still. Yeah. But. All the all the large animals would have died within days or weeks. But then it was still going to be hell on earth for years after that for even the animals that survived that, you know, initial, um, you know, hellscape. Right. Oh, I should mention, sorry, the, there was the heat pulse. And then that ignited forest fires. So you see, like, soot deposits all over North America. It's unclear whether the forest fire was global or whether it was restricted to North America. But that's mm. still... You know, it's it's not good. Sure. Um, scientists believe that more than ten thousand species survived, or are descended from impact survivors. Yeah, everything that's alive today, all every animal, plant, organism on the planet, <clears throat> is the descendant of. At organisms that survived this mass extinction. This is the origin of the modern ecosystem. I mean, that's, I mean, that makes sense. That's pretty broadly speaking, though. Yeah. But, I mean, every mass extinction event represents a, a bottleneck. Yeah. Where, you know, whole, whole groups may be wiped out. Then the organisms that emerge from that bottleneck 
it provides opportunities for them. Right. And in this case, the big winners were mammals. And that's the story that a lot of us, you know, learned in, in school. Um, mammals were relatively small size. Mammals, first mammals appeared around the same time as the first dinosaurs. They were parts of the ecosystem. They were just mostly small. The largest mammal during the um, Mesozoic era was about the size of a cat or small dog. Oh, okay. Um, but pretty quickly after this mass extinction, you start to get, uh, within a few million years, you start to get large, larger mammals, um, eventually getting to pretty large sizes. Although the largest land animal today is the African elephant. It's like seven tons. That's like yeah. the largest dinosaurs were like 70 tons. Oh, okay. So these things are still like way bigger than anything that's around today, except the largest animal that's ever lived is the blue whale, which is alive today. But it, of course it lives in the ocean. So, you know, the buoyancy of water allows you to be larger. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. I but, watched a, yeah. a YouTube video unrelated to this a couple of weeks ago, and it was talking, I think, about the Triassic period where it had the the most variety of weird animals. Oh, yeah. Because they were able to develop very specific traits because of the environment and situation that they lived in. And then after that, most animals became a little more generalized. Partly because of that, 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 that Triassic mass extinction that we talked about. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Do you want to talk about the iridium spike? Yeah, well, this gets into... So I've thrown out a lot of things about, like, you know, things that we know happened after the mass extinction. But, yeah, we should get into how we know this. And a lot of this uh, has to do with um, a uh, father and son pair, Louis and Walter Alvarez. So the asteroid impact causing the mass extinction is frequently referred to as the Alvarez hypothesis. So um, Lewis or Louis Alvarez uh, was a physicist, um, an inventor. And we, um, we mentioned Louis Alvarez during uh, an episode. And this will be, this was not like a wild card, but it was our Manhattan project episode. I guess I might've given that away because I said he was a physicist. Um, but he was, um, he was involved in, um, producing tritium, which was important for the production of the atomic bombs that we talked about. Um, so anyway, he also, um, involved, had a lot of inventions relating to radar. He had like a whole career before this. So he's a pretty cool guy. And then his son, um, Walter Alvarez, they a uh, geologist. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, what they were, what was crucial to their um, hypothesis was something called the iridium anomaly. Iridium is an element that is very uncommon in the Earth's crust. Almost all the iridium in the Earth is in the core because it's heavy, it's dense, so it it sank to the core during the form the early formation of the Earth. Okay. But asteroids, it's a metal similar to platinum. Yes, thank you. Yes, FYI. platinum. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, but where do we where do we find a lot of iridium? Fucking space, man. 
Space. Asteroids. Mm. So the Iridium anomaly was originally um, located in a, uh, two locations, including um, the uh, Western North America or Western U- United States. But after that, in the you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, it's been found all over the world, all different places. So this this layer, it's so to very simplify this, you get the Cretaceous dinosaurs, iridium anomaly, no dinosaurs or no big ones anyway. Um, because what happened was the asteroid hit the the Earth, this huge plume of uh, dust that it ejected blanketed the Earth's atmosphere. As that began to fall down. It deposited this layer that's rich in iridium all over the world. There's lots of other evidence, stuff called shocked quartz, which is um, around the impact area, which shows um, the actual like quartz in the in the crust is broken from the impact. Um, mm-hmm. There are lots and lots and lots of other pieces of evidence. But the uranium anomaly is the the major piece of evidence that most people talk about. It's very convincing. Then later, uh, the um, in um, 2010 is really when we confirmed that the uh, Cheeks Loop crater was tied to this mass extinction. It was before that. It was like uncertain dating. Also, again, this crater it's under the water. You can't like go look at it. Oh, okay. So they well, map, they map this with satellites. Mm. Um, but they did in 2016. They drilled into the Cheeks Loop impact uh, crater area, um, which gave us a lot of. They took rock cores, which gave us a lot of um, really good evidence. Um, so some of the findings, um, all the gypsum from this area was vaporized. Gypsum is high in sulfur. So this is what was ejected up into the atmosphere causing the nuclear winter phenomenon. Um, There's granite from like rock layers far below that was actually brought up because of the impact. So it just a lot of stuff that showed like the force that was happening Hmm. enough to you rend the very crust of the earth. Pretty badass. Yeah, it's pretty metal. This um, Alvarez theory didn't come about until the 80s. Yeah. What did we think about the extinction events before that? Was this asteroid thing brought up as a possibility? or No. Know? I don't some think... of these things seem a lot more recent than I would have ventured. No, I don't think so. Um, and actually, <laughs> I think that there was a little bit of... Um, of course, this is all before I was born, really, uh, all of us. But um, I think there was some angst about the Alvarez hypothesis because, you know, Louis Alvarez was a physicist, right? So some paleontologists were um, kind of angsty about, like, these this physicist coming in and tell us <laughs> what caused this mass extinction. But over time, the weight of the evidence is just um, accumulated and accumulated. And now we're at the point where the vast consensus 
of paleontologists is that not only did the asteroid cause the mass extinction, but it was the primary um, cause and there would not have been a mass extinction without the asteroid and the very specific conditions that it impacted with. Uh, critics, the, critics of that theory, though, point to volcanic activity in yes. India. Yep, the Deccan Traps. Yeah, as a as a possible source of this iridium anomaly, um, they think that if it came from the center of the Earth through a huge volcano, it could be another explanation other than it coming from outer space. Um, you, sorry, you asked. Uh, you asked about what people were talking about prior to the Alvarez's. Yeah, I mean, to Mark's question, like, what was the commonly accepted theory prior to it? There were a lot of ideas. Um, a lot of them were. A lot of them were kind of wacky. Um, some of them were more down to earth, like um, sea level regressions, um, volcanism. Um, some of them were like kind of dumb in hindsight, like mammals ate all the eggs of the dinosaurs, and so they died. Um, maybe a disease. Uh -huh. But actually, one of the primary hypotheses was simply that dinosaurs were on the way towards extinction that they were simply dying out gradually and were replaced over time by other forms of life. That wouldn't really make sense if mammals were becoming more and more common. They just had more and more prey. The, um, and actually up until... I mean, it's still kind of an ongoing area of debate because like I said, the fossil record is actually not super great at the latest Cretaceous, which kind of... Worldwide, I should say, a few places it's good. Kind of complicates this, right? But for a long, for a while, there was um, a discussion about were dinosaur communities essentially already going extinct, or at least becoming less diverse, uh, close to the mass extinction, or were they continuing to thrive? Um, the problem is that again, we were looking at just snapshots. There's like a couple. There's a formation that's from like 70 million years ago in North America, and if you compare that to the Hell Creek, which is the latest Cretaceous in North America, it does seem like there are fewer dinosaur species. Or actually, there are fewer dinosaur species. So that kind of lends evidence that maybe dinosaurs were on the way out. But I think more recently, um, with better fossil evidence and better like kind of time resolution, it looks like dinosaurs and also all kinds of other organisms like pterosaurs were had thriving communities right up until the asteroid hit. Um, you just did something that maybe you should define dinosaur, pterosaur. Um, what is it when they're in water? Plesiosaur. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times when people refer to dinosaur, they use that as a synonym for like big extinct thing. Yeah. Dinosaur. Well, and I'm not being like pejorative. Flip. That is, how that word is used in common parlance. Dinosaur, from a biological standpoint, is a specific group of organisms, um, which is um, roughly uh, a sparrow and a triceratops and everything in between, including their common ancestor. But this is to say that 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 muddies the waters even more in what we're saying right now because sparrows fly. 
but people often say like pterodactyl dinosaur yeah pterosaur pterodactyl pterosaur ter- so. pterosaurs were um if you don't know what i'm talking about you should look up pterosaurs because they were fascinating animals they were some many of them were quite large like the size of an airplane um like 30 feet wingspan uh but these animals were flying reptiles they were closely related to dinosaurs they were not dinosaurs and they did go completely extinct at the end of the uh, Cretaceous. Their wings are constructed completely differently from a bird's. Their wings, I'm doing great podcasting by showing you my hand. Um, their wings are created from their super elongated fourth finger, which like sort of like so a your, bat. Your ring finger. Similar to a bat. Well, bats are all their fingers stretched right. with a membrane stretched across. This will be just one long finger with a membrane stretched across and differently from birds, they walked on the ground on all fours. People used to think that they couldn't really walk um, or that they were super awkward on the ground. Now we think that they were quite capable on the ground on all fours. They folded their wings up and used their, you know, first three fingers for uh, walking. Hmm. I'd like to see that. Then there were also many, many, many kinds of marine reptiles some examples, Dave, that you mentioned were plesiosaurs. These were like the, some of them had very long necks. There were marine crocodilians, which were pretty cool. There were. Is there, is there a, a large like umbrella name? Unfortunately, for, well, no? unfortunately, no, because they were like, there were things called, there was a group called the Sauropterygians, which would be ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs. Then there were also these animals, especially in the Cretaceous, they were like the top sea predators called mosasaurs. They were giant ah. marine lizards, like very closely related to Komodo dragons. Look up a mosasaur. Actually, there's a mosasaur in Jurassic. The Jurassic World movies. I, it's it's kind of like uh, if what people put forward as the um, Loch Ness monster. That's a plesiosaur. Well, oh, that's a plesiosaur. Well, it's not real, but you know what I mean. Well, it's not real, but like what people think it is. Yeah, the Nessie photo looks like a. The top of the head of a plesiosaur. It's actually a wooden sculpture on a toy boat, as we know from the person who made it. <laughs> yeah. But yes, that was supposed to be like, a ple- people say it's a plesiosaur. Now, mosasaurs are cool. I hesitate to bring up the Jurassic World movies, but if you watch them, they have a mosasaur in it. It's the one that, that kills somebody in a horrible fashion that sort of really changes the tone of the movie. Yeah. In a negative way. Yeah, that seems very it's very mean-spirited for no reason yeah i mean the other thing that changes the tone of those movies in a negative way is like all of the writing <laughs> so that's the other problem with them they're bad they're they're not good films i have not seen the most recent one neither have I, I. Heard, <laughs> I have heard many people that said that they liked it yeah but it's probably because of the nostalgia factor alone it does have Jeff Goldblum in it, although I heard he's not in it as much as you want him to well, be. Well, it has Jeff Goldblum, and it has uh, Sam Neill. And Sam it Neill has... and Laura Dern. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just, it's. I think what happened was that it was they were so, I don't know. They've done they've made money, but some aspects of them were so poorly received that they just did what everything in Hollywood does now. We'll just try to resurrect something that people used to love and hope that by simply doing that, it will give them something to grab onto. Yeah, there's a lot of like, hey, look at this, it, it, just in Hollywood in general, like, hey, look at this thing. Or like, look at this person. You liked them. Yeah. And then, but then there's 
there's nothing else to it. It's like, okay, on the next thing. Right. I thought that the first Jurassic World movie was fine. The second one is it was fine. so, so goddamn bad. Hated that movie. Anyway. Yeah. There were many other organisms besides dinosaurs that went extinct. They were large and very interesting, and you should look them up. But I mentioned mammals being very successful. The other group that did really well is also dinosaurs, just the small ones. Because birds are simply the dinosaurs that survived the mass extinction. There are about, estimates vary, but there are about 18,000 species of birds. So for reference, there are only about 6,000 species of mammals. This is today. So there are three times as many species of birds as mammals. They are of a worldwide distribution. They live in every environment. There are more birds, more dinosaurs now than during this Mesozoic period that we've been talking about. Sure. So I am fond of saying that we continue to live in the age of dinosaurs. Can, can you talk about how we know that dinosaurs, that the birds are descendants of dinosaurs? Sure. Talked about this a little bit in the very first episode that I participated in called uh, Dinosaur Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Let me dig that up from the archives. But um, the earliest bird, Archaeopteryx, was discovered in uh, 1865, same year that Dor- Darwin published Origin of the Species. Interesting. And way back then, so this is a bird that has teeth, a long scaly tail, yet it has feathers and had some capability of flight. So it has some features of non-bird dinosaurs and some features that we associate with modern birds. Even back then, Huxley, associate of Darwin, Darwin's bulldog as he was called, recognized the connection. And the idea that birds were descended from dinosaurs or at least somehow related to dinosaurs was relatively common up until the turn of the 20th century. And then it went out of vogue, partly because dinosaur paleontology kind of went out of vogue. Because, well, dinosaurs were dumb and inferior. They must have been because they went extinct. So yes, like, what was the previous hypothesis before the asteroid impact? It was kind of just like, they were inferior, so they must have gone extinct. That's why. God did it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, God did it. Exactly. He smote them for their scaly hubris. Then, in the 1960s, uh, uh, paleontologist John Ostrom and then later others um, began what was uh, known as the, the dinosaur renaissance. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the discovery of this uh, dinosaur Deinonychus, or Deinonychus, which was um, a relative of the famous, the more famous Velociraptor, which was actually discovered earlier in time. And then, mm. but kind of ignored. Uh, it was larger, but um, this Dionychus is what basically what the Velociraptor is in Jurassic Park. Yeah, a little bit larger, but yeah, it's closer to Dionychus. So, um, this animal was so very obviously bird-like that the connection became very, very apparent. There was still so in the paleontology community, it was fairly well established that. Birds or dinosaurs, or at least, again, very closely related to them. But then in the 90s, we started discovering 
all this treasure trove of feathered dinosaurs from China. And then now we've discovered feathered dinosaurs from some other parts of the world. Uh, and the connection between birds and dinosaurs is, um, it's unequivocal. And not only are birds dinosaurs, but many of the features that you associate with modern birds were present in non-bird dinosaurs. So feathers. What, like and hollow bones? Hollow bones. Um, large complex brains. Uh, co- wishbone. <laughs> like on your Thanksgiving turkey. That bone's pretty diagnostic for birds. And Doesn't hip shape have something to do with this too? Um, yes. <laughs> That's a little confusing because very early on in paleontology, dinosaur paleontology, like the 1870s, they recognized this distinction between the Saurischians lizard-hipped dinosaurs and ornithischians, bird-hipped dinosaurs. The problem with that is that the, it was not very aptly named because that is actually the saurischian or quote lizard-hipped dinosaurs that birds descend from. So that distinction is a very, it's kind of antiquated at this point. But yeah, mm-hmm. that okay. distinction is probably still as, and as far as delineating the two major groups of dinosaurs, still probably in every dinosaur book that you would get up until fairly recently. Um, gotcha. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so uh, also, again, things like going back to dinosaurs being birdie, complex parental care, many dinosaurs did that. Um, vocalizations, just anything that you can think of that you associate with like a trait as being belonging to modern birds probably existed before modern birds in their extinct dinosaur relatives. Hmm. Okay. This is really changing the way we look at these things. We have a lot of life reconstructions of dinosaurs at uh, our museum and they, they're all covered in feathers and things like this. Right. Again, um, I hate to like plug Apple, like a subscription product but apple tv plus if you have it or you know someone you can get their password and watch it the first episode's actually free to watch even if you don't have it so i would i would check it out prehistoric planet you get a really good idea of what we what we really think these animals looked like based on our modern understanding it does a really good job of that hmm. cool. although my son was traumatized by it we thought He's six years old. He really loves dinosaurs. We'll watch this show. He's been excited about it. A baby T-Rex gets eaten within like the first two minutes, and he was in, in tears. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, was, he was very sad. That's just how it goes, man. I know. Circle of life. Circle of life. We're, we're coming around to maybe we'll try to watch it again. Has he seen Lion King? Uh, Yes. Or Bambi. He has not seen. No, I these think are, he's seen Bambi. Great introductions to death. It, it's really because, yeah, I saw a meme that was like, old Disney movies, my parents are dead and now I must fight a villain. Or my family is dead. New Disney movies, my family is alive and now I have to deal with their bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and this explains to me why newer Disney movies are lacking this, <laughs> this dark visceral <laughs> undertone that just breaks the spirit of a child. That's why we were also uh that's why we were also like dark and gritty 
in the in the 90s because we I, got saw, yeah, I saw terminator baby. 2 way too early and i think it kind of fucked me up robocop was mine that i saw too early oh, yeah. I, I do i think it really explains why i i like the kind of movies i like also there is a first person shooter robocop game coming out soon that is supposed to occur like right after the like those original three robocop movies mm-hmm. looks fucking awesome the first robocop the the like uh like the first the opening scene is brutal as hell when they kill him yeah yeah that i that scene like i remember my dad renting robocop for me when i was maybe like seven and as an adult watching this movie and watching that scene watching fucking red foreman torture this guy it 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 is the most violent thing i've ever seen in a movie that is not intentionally a horror movie yeah they maybe it is a horror movie i don't know like it's and then there's that scene at the end where the guy gets like toxic waste dumped on him and he's all like melting and then he gets hit by a car and just explodes i watched a a thing about how they made that happen which was just as gross as watching the scene itself (laughs) i'm sure yeah that that was really brutal um jurassic park is one of my like watched that movie too early because that uh, that is a horror movie you cannot convince me that that is not a horror movie at its core i think so yeah yeah i I think for sure the first the, so we're all um, around the same age. The first Jurassic Park movie came out in '94. Yeah, um, I saw it in the theater. So I saw it in the theater eight. too. Yeah, I remember sitting in the front row because we that's the only seats we could get. All too young to be watching that movie. <laughs> my mom fucking fell asleep during the T Rex chase scene. That movie still holds up. Even as a kid, I remember thinking, like, how? How can you? I saw the other day, I think Nerdist posted it, there is an action figure set you can get that's, you know, yay big, of the the lawyer sitting on the toilet with the T-Rex biting him. Great. Yeah. <laughs> very, very amazing to see. Mark, did you see that movie when it came out? Mm, no, but I was into it as a kid. I don't remember seeing it in the theater. Yeah. But I had all the toys and stuff that went with it. Yeah. I'd... Mm-hmm. Obviously, very into it. I get asked a lot, like, "Oh, you must hate Jurassic Park because it, you know, it's like not scientifically accurate." Like, man, I loved Jurassic Park when I was a kid, and I still have a lot of affection for that movie. That movie inspired a ton of paleontologists, and I, I'm sure, and I will say, even the same way that Star Trek inspired people who want to be astrophysicists or astronauts, yeah, yeah exactly. and even though, well, yeah, and the science in Star Trek is not accurate per se, but it's the idea of the universe is we can explore it and we can learn about this stuff. I think it's kind of the same thing, but with Jurassic park, they made some mistakes or not mistakes, some decisions, uh, like the velociraptors are too big, even in 1994. Oh, they knew. Now 96 is when the first of these feathered dinosaurs from China were unearthed, but I will go out on a limb and I will say that we still, I think they still uh, would have been justified, and I think they should have put feathers on the Velociraptor in the original Jurassic Park. They have no excuse not to in the Jurassic World movies, but they explain it away as saying, like, well, they're not really dinosaurs because we spliced them with other creatures' DNA. There's a line in the first Jurassic World movie that uh, 
the Dr. Wu character says to retcon that. But anyway, but the well, idea is like these, the pop culture version of a dinosaur that yeah. we're familiar with. Right. But the way that the dinosaurs move, they don't behave like giant lizards, and nor do they behave like monsters. They act like animals. And, but like predators. Yes. And but yeah. a lot of their movements are very bird like. But they're just they're active. They're sure. clearly like representing warm blooded animals. And that's very very much what we think and that was very cutting edge at the time and that really changed the way a lot of people think about those animals and i think that that on balance is outweighs the dumb stuff about the t-rex can't see you if you don't move and stuff like that did you know that the scene where the t-rex head comes through the the glass roof of the car i always thought it was weird as a kid that the roof didn't shatter that it like pushes in and I guess that wasn't supposed to happen. Oh, really? Like, like the the plexiglass roof on the top just gave. Mm-hmm. So the kids are literally screaming because the mechanical T-Rex head is, like, crushing them. <laughs> that was not supposed to happen. <laughs> I think I did. I think I did see that somewhere. Yeah. That whole scene is magic, yeah. Oh, that's great. Or that whole sequence, I should say. Yeah. Well... I think since we're we're running a little long, I think anything you want to wrap up with, Joe, because I think ending here with birds or dinosaurs is sort of a great way to to put a pin in this extinction event. Well, yeah, then that's that's definitely how we would end because, um, yeah, like I said, when you you know you go out your outside or look out your window window and you see birds, you are looking at dinosaurs. But also, as I said, every animal on the planet today is the descendant of some creature that for some reason was able to survive this um, incredibly brutal mass extinction event. Even us. Even us. The earliest Even primates yeah. were around, or the, the the ancestors of the earliest primates were around at this time or just after. Yeah. Primates appear very soon after the uh, end Cretaceous mass extinction. So, yeah. We we mentioned yeah. uh, closer to the beginning that we're in the midst of a possible sixth extinction. Yes. And I got a couple of brief comments on that just because it's related. Yeah. Uh, Mark's hot takes. Mark's hot takes. Well, we know today that about 99% of all species to have ever existed on the planet are extinct. 1% is what is left. Um, and that a 10 to 25 species per year is a quote unquote normal extinction rate. The background extinction rate. Like throughout time. Yeah, throughout time, it's normal for species to become extinct sure. outside 10 to of these, a year. these extraordinary events. But right now in our human history, we're at about 100 times this rate. Um, things like increased CO2 emissions, increases temperature, habitat destruction, invasive species. Wait, uh, wait, wait. That would suggest that we're at a rate of a thousand species going extinct per year? Yes. Most of them are things that you've never heard of. They're mostly sure. things like insects. Okay. But we really are at that rate, around a thousand per year. That's an estimate, but yeah. Good God. 
Um, since the uh, during the twentieth century alone, as many as five hundred and forty three land vertebrates have become extinct, and there are about thirty five thousand species that are considered to be threatened with extinction. Um, so these numbers aren't looking great. <laughs> um, I should say not. But um, this article also points out some things about how um, scientists are trying to figure out ways to prevent species from becoming extinct uh, by things like monitoring their population. Apparently, they design, scientists or researchers have come up with some kind of algorithm that they can use satellite imagery to count the number of animals from space in a particular area. And yep. I, I imagine that they're probably talking about like elephants and bigger animals. The charismatic megafauna, as they're yep. sometimes called. And they also point out that cloning could be a possible option uh, for probably cute animals that we don't want to go extinct. Their yep. uh, their example <laughs> is a black footed ferret. Yep. Oh, okay. That uh, I guess went extinct, and they were able to clone it. The black-footed ferret About is a conservation. Yeah, it's a conservation ex success story. There were small handful of individuals in the American West. They rounded up all the remaining individuals in the wild. They had a captive breeding program. It did involve some techniques, like, um, but it, a lot of it was tr traditional captive breeding, and they've been able to release them back into the wild. So there are some conservation success stories. Habitat law, obviously climate change is the big the big factor or one of the big factors, but habitat loss is the the major factor. Um and so this is why when I talked when we talked about the organic food episode, why I'm so passionate about uh against uh the organic food movement uh because we need to grow more food on less land. Because that is the only way that we're going to stop this mass extinction event. So that makes sense. That is Joe's hot take. We talked about doing an episode about organic food. Did we do that? We did that. We did. Okay. It was I less. Remember whether we ever did it. It was less of a rant than it could have been. <laughs> Isn't it always? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So yeah, go check out some birds, some living dinosaurs. Yeah, absolutely. Check out some ferrets while you're at it. Yum them too. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Well, we'll talk to everybody next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to an hour of our time. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to explore our catalog of over 150 episodes and rate and review on your platform of choice. And if you have any comments or episode topic suggestions, contact us at an hour of our time podcast at gmail.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.